0: Uh, Good evening uh, history lovers and welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School and I'm your Head School Master Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland magazine and this event is a spin-off from our recent uh, supplement. I I, I presume you're all familiar with the magazine itself but as well as the magazine uh, this year we have a a special supplement entitled the Global Revolution and that in turn is a spin-off from a project uh, co-sponsored by this university and Um, Queen's University in Belfast and uh, Enda just came out there as uh, one of the people involved and Fergal McGarry here on my right from Queen's is the other. Now um, the topic here tonight is Scotland and the global revolution. Uh, So to what extent did revolutionary developments abroad shape what happened within Ireland during the revolutionary period 1919 to 23 and in what ways did events within Ireland impact beyond Irish shores? For instance, amongst the large Irish diaspora population and other national groups. So, we're going to discuss this generally, but we're, all go- we're also going to look at the particular case of uh, Scotland and, and this city. Uh, and I'm joined then by Darry Gannon. Uh, he's been. He's uh, Darragh's got an article in the supplement, by the way. Have to get that plug in. Fergal uh, McGarry here, and th- th- these two lads are both at uh, Queen's University. And then on my left, uh, Niall Whelan of Strathclyde University and finally Kirsty Lusk uh, of the the rival city up the road, uh, Glasgow. Um, Now, um, just before I I start, I just want to get a thank you in apart from um, Enda and um, Fergal. I just want a a word of thanks to the Irish government's uh, commemorations unit who have flown me over here at great expense and will be whining and dining the lot of us uh, later. Um, Now, uh, just to explain the format of this evening, uh, the, the, the head school, uh, it's an informal format. I'm going to ask these people up here a few difficult questions and see how they get on. Uh, remember, you're at school here, guys. You, you, you have to do a bit of work. Sit up straight in your seat, pay attention and formulate a, a question or two or an, or an observation. We don't just have uh, a and a at the end. Uh, we, we encourage the audience to, to uh, dive in uh, at any time. Just put your hand up and I, I, I will uh, come to you. Uh, but we, we'll possibly let the uh, let the panel warm up a little bit first. So we're open to questions at any stage and we have a, a radio mic. Uh, now the other thing to bear in mind is this is being recorded, so keep it clean. Uh, now, just to get started, now this might seem like, I, I'm aware for example that this we're, we're recording this for subsequent podcasts, so uh, a lot of people, a lot of people in Ireland in particular will be listening to this. I just want to clarify something at the outset, which is Scotland's constitutional position uh, as opposed to Ireland's because I think a lot of people in Ireland kind of lazily think that Scotland was was conquered in the same way and of course you weren't conquered here yours was a voluntary union uh, with the with the, the people to the south uh, so it, it is different in that sense um the other thing is uh, I just like uh, just to talk a little bit about what mean you know, what was the population of Scotland I'm, I'm assuming about five million Am I right on that so it's roughly the same as Ireland Uh representation westminster i'm assuming about 70 that'd be correct 60 70 seats in westminster and of course ireland had much more ireland had over 100 uh, but that was because the population was dropping throughout the, the 19th century so ireland was actually overrepresented in westminster and the my, my final question is then how did that break down so who were the main political parties here i'm assuming the conservative and unionist party liberals uh, and Labour, essentially. So they're the, they're the, 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 the three uh, main parties. Um, now, Neil, can I just come to you first, like, because just to talk about the, you know, where all these Irish people came from that ended up uh, in this part of the world, uh, you know, all, all over Scotland.
1: Um, yeah, so, say, between the Great Famine and the Irish Revolution, about 8% of the people who left Ireland came to Scotland. The millions of people who left Ireland in that sort of 70-year period came here. Um, and many arrived in, during the famine. So in 1850, by 1851, the Irish population of Scotland had increased by 90% uh, to about 200,000 people. The peak of Irish-born people in this period in Scotland was about the 1870s, 1880s. During the kind of land league time, it was about a quarter of a million Irish-born people in Scotland and a massive proportion of them lived in Glasgow so 140,000 of them lived in Glasgow and 10,000 in Edinburgh, Like, so was a huge
0: So it's very much concentrated in Glasgow
1: At that time, yeah, so that yeah. was really a huge number in Glasgow, so when we get to 1916 rising, um, there's less Irish-born people in Scotland not significantly so, there's about 175,000 50,000 of them live in Glasgow, but the overwhelming majority live in sort of Lanarkshire uh, and Glasgow Um and they're about 4% of the Scottish population. So it's decreasing, but there's still so d- a very immigration Irish from Ireland is, is,
0: is diminishing when it's you come into the 20th century?
1: From sort of the 1870s, it's decreasing every year in the census, but it's still quite large. And, of course, you have this second- and third-generation communities um, that also participate in this very vibrant sort of Irish cultural and political scene.
0: So at a rough guess... How, how how many, you know, what what portion of the population could be described as either Irish-born or, or, or of Irish background in the early 20s, there, roughly?
1: Well, 4% were Irish-born at the time of the 1916 rising, so of Irish background you'd probably say maybe 10%. Uh, some scholars have estimated at around 10%. I mean, it's very hard to put your finger on that, maybe, and then those, I uh, uh, have a clear idea, but I'd say around 10%. Um, Of course, the Irish community wasn't defined by nationalist politics, just to say. Um, But there was, you know, quite a distinctive and significant mobilisation of Irish diaspora nationalism in Scotland going back to the Fenian movement. So the famine immigrants really engaged with the Fenian movement. And while we tend to think of Irish nationalism, the high watermark of it being during the revolutionary era, for example, in the 1860s, the Fenian movement had 8,000 recruits in it, in comparison to 2,000 or 2,500 in Scotland, IRA volunteers in Scotland during the Revolutionary Era. So the Fenian movement was a bigger mobilisation. They also tried to send people to Ireland in 1867. The sort of timing of the rising and the lack of notice meant that huge numbers didn't go to fight, but some did. Um, and the IRB presence in Scotland from then from the 1860s continues throughout the 19th century into the 20th century as it does in Ireland and of course during the revolution period the Fenian IRB provides a bedrock for a lot of the uh, volunteer movements in Scotland in the 19 in the war of independence
0: I just want to go to Dara about about the similar situation in other British cities right? but before that just uh, before we forget about it you're talking about the the, the Politically, they could be, you know, quite varied, right? But, the, but they were, it was defined by religion, right? I'm, I'm assuming the bulk of these people are Catholic. Yeah. And would it be correct to say then that the, the, the bulk of Catholics in Scotland are people of Irish background, or is that a, a, an incorrect assumption to make?
1: Well, there are Scottish Catholics as well, and of course, there's arguments and a lot of divisions between them in the Catholic Church. Um, there's sort of rivalries between Irish and Scottish, Scottish Catholics in the Catholic Church in the 19th century. Uh, in terms of Irish politics and Irish nationalism. The sort of Catholic-Protestant question is not so sharply defined, I would say, in the 19th century as it becomes maybe later on. So, for example, if you take the Land League, the leader of the Land League in Scotland was John Ferguson, who's a Presbyterian from Ulster, um, and other leaders were also Protestant. So it wasn't exclusively Catholic, even though, you'd have to say, the majority of people... A bit uh, like the early days of the Land League
0: in Ireland. I mean, yeah. there was a lot of uh, Presbyterian tenor farmer involved in that. Darryl, can I just go, just go on the, the broader... Does, does the Scottish um situation does that chime with what's happening in other big cities liverpool manchester you know other parts of the united kingdom
2: yeah it's interesting you mentioned the the kind of the nationalist movement and so on from the 19th century and actually scotland of course was one of the main um core areas for the united irish league of great britain and of course the ancient order of hibernians um, our own patrick Mannion here is is very interested in the ancient order of hibernians but so there is a very strong um nationalist organization structure um which goes right across the United Kingdom. Um, but it's very focused as well on, on Scotland. So, uh, you know, for example, um, the Home Rule movement it survives, for example, the 1916 Rising much, strong, much more strongly in Scotland than it does anywhere else in, let's say, Liverpool, London or Manchester. Um,
0: you know, but the Irish Home Rule movement. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. the
2: United Irish League, etc. Um, especially the, the Home Government branch. And you mentioned um, Ferguson earlier on. There was, this was kind of the these kind of journalists um, who kind of were very much to the fore in in kind of Glasgow Irish politics, were very much to the fore of the United Irish League movement in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, And so there is a very strong continuity there from the late 19th century, right past 1916 up until around 1919 and 1920, in Scotland specifically. Uh, And the Ancient Order of Hibernians really buttressed the kind of nationalist movement uh, during this period, adding numbers but also financial support um, to, you know, from Parnell right up to John Redmond.
0: Okay. Now, Kirsty, can I bring you in here because uh, no discussion of this sort uh, is complete, of course, without mention of James Connolly from you know, born in this in this city. I mean, is has his position this been exaggerated, or is his you know is his you know predominance in this discussion is it justified?
3: I believe it is. Yeah, I think Connolly is an incredibly fascinating figure as a sort of focus for some of the complexities that come around the Irish-Scottish relationship. You know, if we think about it, at the time, 1889, Connolly is leaving the British Army, he's returning to Edinburgh. At the same time, um, Parnell is being given the freedom of the city of Edinburgh by the Liberal Party and there's a great Home Rule demonstration in support of Ireland, um, which I think it's 300,000 turnout to meet him. Um, But Connolly, uh, certainly is a figure that very much brings together Scotland and Ireland in different ways, um, particularly with the support that was coming from Ireland in 1916. Um, it was to Seamus she- she- Reader that was taking over um, the munitions to Connolly and Mar- uh, Markovic. that was where the Glasgow-based support was going to when they were taking the munitions. and. Um, Weapons
0: over. Can I just go back a little bit, Kirsty, sure. just to, to Connolly's uh, active period in Edinburgh. Wh- when roughly was he active in, in, in Edinburgh? Like, before he even came to Ireland.
3: Um, so he returned to Scotland in 1889 and was active from probably then on. Um, and even before then, he was really learning his socialism in Edinburgh. He was born in Edinburgh, which is something that still goes overlooked um, mm. in Ireland to a certain extent. And he really learned these socialism in the streets. So he's got he's got proposals. a
0: fair chunk of his career already under his belt yes, uh-huh. before he comes back to Ireland.
3: Definitely. Yeah. Yes. Right. Um, and even in 1914, he's still writing for Forward, the Glasgow-based publications. So almost right up to the rise, and he still has links with Scotland and Glasgow. Right.
0: Fergus, can I bring you in here because in a way, this this um, dovetails into the kind of the, the the central concept of this global revolution thing, which is the the effect of radicalisation from outside Ireland into Ireland. Maybe just talk a little bit about that, because it seems to me that Connolly is a a perfect example of this.
4: I think so. So uh, one of the uh, starting points for our project is that I think we tend to think about the Irish Revolution as something that happens within Ireland. And that's a kind of a perfectly understandable sort of assumption. But actually, when you start looking at individuals and organisations and the movement of people and the movement of ideas, it, it very rapidly becomes more complicated so if you look at just even look at the republican movement back in ireland its political strategy is very much predicated on a kind of an international strategy of winning international support its propaganda is based towards an international um, audience if we look even at the military side of what republicans are doing in ireland uh they need guns those guns some of those guns are coming from abroad they need money to fight the war most of that money or much of that money is coming from abroad from america and so on And that brings us down into, so even even if we're just interested in how the revolution militarily and politically is is working out in Ireland, we have to start thinking in that kind of international space. Um, The other really important dimension is the diaspora themselves. I mean, I think about one in three Irish people, uh, one in three living Irish people are living outside the country. And if we think about even something as straightforward as politicisation, it's really interesting how many people who are sort of household names in the Irish Revolution in Ireland have actually passed through other areas I mean Deaire is born in America um, uh, Michael Collins is radicalized in London um, mm. uh, the, the Fenians are, are bankrolled and organized um, from America and if, even if we look at uh, connections with Scotland there's some really interesting um, uh, points of interest um, if we think about the Clyde side it's industrial working class very strong in labor and socialism a lot of the, the people who become well-known in Ireland as Labour leaders or Socialist leaders actually come from uh, come from Scotland or come from Britain. So we think about, um, I mean, Connolly's a specific, interesting example. I think about Jim Larkin from Liverpool, Thomas Johnson from Liverpool, uh, Michael Davids coming from the industrial uh, north of England. Um, and is it a kind of a a really interesting body of thought which looks at the idea of the movement of people is not just about an idea moving from one place to another place, but actually the movement itself generates really interesting political developments. So if we think about Connolly, to the best of my knowledge, Connolly wasn't a physical force Republican and he wasn't a cultural nationalist in Scotland. It's when he comes to Ireland to take up a, a trade union job, I think primarily for economic reasons, that his politics change and he, and he, he creates this sort of fusion of what's really a kind of a, a British... Scottish form of socialism with Irish republicanism and cultural nationalism and I think you can see that at, at the level of lots of ordinary people in Scotland and in mm. Ireland so a, so, so the, the process of movement isn't just a sort of an interesting what if but actually I think it's quite important to th- figuring out how political ideas operate um, within the different spaces in which the revolution takes place.
0: Yeah because isn't it a case that for the vast bulk of Irish people their conditions abroad are completely different, I mean they're, they're by and large urban industrial working class, as opposed to, 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 to rural, yeah, agricultural.
4: So, so we, we, we talk about the diaspora, and the diaspora are very important, or f- raising money, or smuggling arms, or whatever. But actually, the, the diaspora is different in every country. Mm, so the, the diaspora mm. in Scotland is different to the diaspora in England, and actually the IRA do different things, uh, partly as a result of the structure of where people are, uh, where they're based, and so on. But but particularly if we look at the political context. So, for example, the the, the Irish diaspora in um, uh, Dominions tend to keep their head down a little bit because they're in sort of Anglophile, Protestant kind of countries. Catholics are a small minority. Then you look at the Irish diaspora in America and they're much, much more assertive. And I think this plays into what I was talking about, which is the shift of political change from Redmondism to Republicanism. It happens much quicker in some places than others. Like It seems to me, I think you can make a case that, say, Irish-Americans like in New York are actually ahead of Ireland in terms of the shift from constitutional nationalism or Redmondism to Republicanism. It's happening around the beginning of the First World War period rather than 1916 or 1917 and then somewhere like um, uh, England or Scotland it's, it's, it's a lot slower that shift from Redmondism to Separatism and it's, so it's partly to do with the specific context that people find themselves in with, within these different sort of diaspora populations.
0: Just I want to I develop a second but just to go back to you Neil, um, you, you, I think, if I heard you did you say that the, 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 the sectarian element wasn't such a, a, an issue the, the, the Catholic Protestant divide?
1: No, it was always an issue. Um, It was more of an issue in Scotland than it was in England and probably more of an issue, at least by the late 19th century, in Scotland than it was in the United States, for example. Um, So studies of, I guess, mobilisation of Irish nationalists in Scotland have referred to anti-Catholic prejudice, discrimination as a sort of mobilising factor that maybe partly explains why there were more, you know, nearly three times as many Scottish people active during the Irish Revolution as they were in England for example
0: though. No but just, just on, sorry to you, just to, 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 to just tease this one out was there any, we, we talked about kind of solidarity of the diaspora with various movements constitutional and revolutionary in Ireland was there a, a, a similar thing on the other side I mean was there a fellow feeling with say Ulster Unionists uh, which is you know if you go to Belfast today you'll see you know, Scottish salt here all over the place right, is that just a recent phenomenon? That sort of uh, you know ranger supporting loyalist from Belfast.
2: You actually even in the pre nineteen sixteen period during the height of the Ulster Crisis, you have UVF units formed in Scotland, for example. Okay, so there and are and, then, and they're very public about that. They're sending newspaper reports and uh, to the places like the newspapers like the Glasgow Observer, which would be widely read. So you actually almost have a competing discourse about you know what the union was, who benefited in the newspapers of the day. Um, At that time, and even in the post-1916 period, during the War of Independence, for example, um, there's considerable, like the police reports, actually based here at the the National Archives in Edinburgh, do document the kind of tensions with local communities. There's a lot as well of, um, you know, reporting of Republican activities uh, by the local community to the police because they're believed to be, you know, um, treacherous or seditious and so on. Sorry,
0: Chris, do you want to come in there? Yeah,
3: yeah, I was just going to add into that is that you then have a position where in the very streets of Glasgow you have sectarian gangs forming up right. on either side of that divide and um, sort of spilling into violence in the streets at times. Um, and that's post-1916. You're starting to see that. And it's combined with the rise in Republican support in uh, Glasgow.
0: And ha- have they discovered football at this stage? Or is that, is that <laughs> again <laughs> a, <problem>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> a well, well,
3: one of the... Um, I think one of the Protestant gangs was the Billy Boys, but yes, but that stage of, yes, they've discovered football as well. OK. But it's, it's
1: sympathetic Scottish Nationalists um, had a journal called Liberty in the 1920s where they, were, they reprinted Sinn Féin articles in it, um, and one of the news agents that sold it was across the road from Ibrox, so I don't think they got a lot of
4: <laughs> pass <laughs> trade. But there
3: was a Govan brand o- uh, branch of the uh, IRA, Govan Circle, around.
4: And you, you can also take those tensions sort of look at them on the macro-global scale, and you see very similar kind of tensions and arguments in places like New Zealand and Australia and so on. In Australia, for example, uh, the Irish question becomes hugely important from the Easter Rising onwards Mm -hmm. and it becomes part of the the debate about whether or not there should be conscription and you've got a very sharp alignment between Conservatives who who want to see conscription and an alignment between Labour and Irish nationalists Uh, and that takes on a very sectarian kind of Character similarly in Canada. So it's not just we we tend to know and think a lot about Republicans and nationalists, but you see Orangism and Loyalism and Unionism mobilized throughout the Empire and sometimes very effectively, um, as in places like uh, Canada. And all that does shape to a certain extent the the, the, the pressures that apply on Britain as we come into the, the, the War of Independence itself and how that gets settled.
0: Just let's. I want to just go back to the 1916 rising, right? Um, obviously, Connolly is involved. Um, do we know, you know, how many people of Scottish background, maybe Irish, but who had lived in Scotland, you know, kind of expats? How many were involved in, in 1916? My impression it seems to me that, that Irish people from outside Ireland were, were disproportionately represented uh, in that small sample. In 1916.
4: In 1916, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, num- the the numbers seem to vary. Um, the It's suggested that maybe up to about 30 people Mm. came over from Scotland uh, to fight in the Easter Rising. Other people say it's around 16. Most of them seem to have come from Glasgow, so it's small enough, but you also have groups of uh, men and women. Um, Margaret Skinner, for example, comes over from Glasgow, Liverpool, Manchester, London, so the big Irish (coughs) centres of population. So they they probably represent... um, I mean, they they end up in Dublin a few weeks, or a few months before the Rising itself, and they're sort of a a, a garrison, uh, sort of a... Um, has so you know they're, they're, they're small but significant kind of number. They cause a lot of confusion on the streets of Dublin because they they when they mobilise some of them don't know where the GPO is. They're lost. Have to directions. Some of them go go onto a Canal Street bridge and Irish people of uh, Irish-born people are are shocked to find people with Scottish and English accents with guns, you know, telling them to, to get off. So there's all sorts of confusion <laughs> yeah. and chaos. But I think it's quite um, a small number. And the, the main importance of this, this, the IRA in Scotland, which was, lies in other areas, but you do have right up to the Civil War, for example, you do have small but significant numbers taking part in, in the finance going on. During the Civil War, for example, I think you've got about 50 anti-treatyites coming over from Scotland, and about 250 pro-treatyites. So they're, I mean, they're not insignificant, and I guess one of the things which characterises the Irish no, that's so,
0: so Just to clarify, uh, uh, these are people of scotland but of irish background
4: yeah because we're I mean, irish born m- m- many of right, them would be irish right, born right. but i was going to say one i mean each diaspora is characterized by different circumstances one of the interesting things about the scottish diaspora is its proximity to ireland mm. Mm. and mm. that's really important in terms of they can come over and in fact when you're looking at the ira and how they're run in scotland people come over from dublin people come over from belfast so, th- so there's much more of a kind of a traffic than you would find uh, you know in, in other places
0: can I just mention one thing? I just I want to just throw this in because I'm going to forget it, right? Um, I've just been in the discussion before, and I asked the question: You know, was there a home rule movement in Scotland? This is pre World War One. And Kirsty, you were saying that there was actually a home rule bill passed for yeah. Scotland.
3: At the same time as the home rule bill was passed for Ireland, there was one passed for Scotland as well, and it was a similar circumstance where, with the beginning of the First World War, it was delayed and then never really um, returned from then on. However... Why, um, why was
0: that scarcity? You know, why was it f- forgotten about?
3: Um, it wasn't necessarily forgotten. Well, there was a, or area, ignored I believe, I believe a governmental change in the middle of uh, the First World War. Um, there was continued support for Scottish Home Rule. Um, I think we start seeing uh, Scottish Home Rule uh, committees of 1917 onwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could be argued that with um, the Scottish involvement in the First World War um, and the events of the Easter Rising, we see a kind of uh, decrease in support for Scottish home rule um, and a sort of maybe bond of blood. You could almost suggest mm. with uh, the events of the First World War.
0: It would seem to back up the argument then that you know, um, which still rages among Irish historians, that. Just because the Home Rule Bill for Ireland was passed in nineteen twelve does, does not necessarily mean it was ever going to be implemented, right? But that's that's a different uh, well,
3: a different, different I mean, there. we we have
0: proof of it here, you know. Uh,
4: it's interesting to think about the structure of politics. I mean, by the late 19th century, Ireland basically uh, has its own political parties, which are centered around mm. the Irish mm. Question. Whereas. That doesn't happen to the same no. extent in Scotland, So, but whereas it, it had been like that in Ireland. And we're now, from we getting to the present-day politics, one of the re- interesting stresses and strains in the present-day UK is you now have political parties which are much more organised regionally, and I think that causes a certain pulling away of the central state at mm. the time.
3: And that's, we do start seeing a movement towards that um, sort of in the aftermath of 1916. Um, we start seeing a movement to creating some sort of Scottish political party um, we also see, I think, uh, it's John McLean that creates a Scottish branch of the Communist Party. So there is that sort of movement at that time periods of, of a separation of sorts.
2: Even within actually just the, the, the nationalist or even the Republican movement post-1916, it's quite interesting to note that while the 19th century and early 20th century Home Rule movement was united across borders uh, you know, in Great Britain itself, as the United Irish League of Great Britain post 1916, Sinn Féin, um, sorry, the republican movement in Great Britain is divided from basically the border between Scotland and the north of England, and Scotland maintains the Sinn Féin uh, appellation or title, whereas down south it becomes the Irish Self-Determination League. And even though it sounds and they do kind of you know chime with each other in terms of wanting Irish independence, the Scottish uh, Sinn Féin um, uh, you know political movement and not, notwithstanding the IRA are vehemently republican and separatist in a way that you know nationalists south of that border aren't which is quite interesting going back to fergal's point about why you know why be a nationalist in scotland and what are the kind of you know contingent factors whether it be living in an urban community whether it be communal differences or tensions and so on that make you know irish people of irish birth or or of irish descent more republican than their counterparts south of that border
4: so if, if you look at some of the accounts of politicisation that you have in the Bureau of Military History, you've got a handful of accounts of people who uh, you know, primarily come from Glasgow. And some of them, when they talk about how they're politicised, it's very like how Republicans are politicised in Belfast. Mm. They're joining flute bands, there's sectarian rioting, there's strong political and sectarian tensions. In, in some ways, they're growing up in a, in a, a, sec, a more sectarian and politicised environment than, than some Irish people in, in, in the south of Ireland. So it's, you could, there's a really distinctive set of... Characteristics and a much stronger influence of socialism and kind of British forms of radicalism.
3: Yeah, I think after um, 1916, it's John Wheatley that suggests that um, we see a turn in the Irish diaspora in certainly Glasgow, but in Scotland, and a rise of support for socialism. Um, So Connolly's death in particular begins to turn things there.
0: So you're saying that Connolly's death gives an impetus to socialist ideas?
3: It was John Wheatley's suggesting yes right. he found um, certainly amongst uh, Irish Catholics that he was approaching from a socialist perspective, right. uh, there was an increase in support for socialism in the aftermath of 1916.
0: I think just one thing that might be, uh, be worth commenting because yeah. this comes up a lot in, in, in the, the discussion of the Irish situation is that it was possible to be a Catholic and be a socialist until quite late into the 1920s I think it, was, it wasn't until the late 20s or even the 30s that say the Soviet Union takes an explicitly anti-clerical mm. position because you know it, it, seem, it, it can seem very odd when you look at it say you know Countess Markovitch this is classic you know Godspeed Lenin right you know, <laughs> I mean it sums up that whole contradiction there right uh, so that doesn't surprise me, you know, that, that uh, uh, the, the two aren't necessarily uh,
4: uh, contradictory. It's, it's the same period when the Vatican takes up an explicitly anti communist position, that, 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 that yeah, idea of the crusade against communism. That's, that's later also, as well. That's early 30s. Right. Yeah, so yeah, it's, so it's, it's, much it's, much it's much after this period. The Vatican, yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah. I think it's Sweetly's exact wording as a sort of a, uh, overcoming a mountain of prejudice against socialism, is what he's finding in those communities in the aftermath of 1916. And he specifically ties that into Connolly.
1: Just to come in really on that point in yeah. terms of Irish nationalists, socialists in Scotland and other places, I guess there's a broader question about sort of the communism and small nation nationalism. Um, so the common term position after 1919 is that small nations are a bad thing and they break up larger confederations of workers. So they don't want a Scottish party, a Welsh party and an English party, they want the British Communist Party. And John Maclean kind of goes against that and he sees small nation nationalism as a way of shattering British imperialism and breaking this next stage of capitalist development which he saw was this sort of war between England or Britain and America slug it out for, for world dominance. So I guess there's this window around the time of the Irish Revolution where small-nation nationalism is compatible with socialism, maybe communism. But later in the 1920s, the common turn sort of push against that and it becomes a little bit more difficult. So if you take someone like William Willie Gallagher, uh, who was a, a collaborator with Maclean in the sort of 1919-1920, uh, He takes more of the commentary line and splits with Maclean because there's a sort of pressure on him to sort of downplay small nation nationalism, whether in Ireland or also in Scotland.
0: Kirsty, could you talk to me about John Maclean? Because he seems to be the centre of this. I mean, how significant was he? Or is he just somebody howling in the wind on the fringes?
3: I think um, very much his significance... um at the time, gathering support, but also um, throughout history, since his legacy has left, um, you know, we still get uh, marches in Glasgow and so on and so forth. But Maclean very much um, brings together those ideas of nationalism and socialism and the support for the working classes. Um, sorry, now you to he, w- he, w- he was to slow.
0: This. He wasn't slow in giving good advice either. Like uh, you know, when he came to Ireland, you know. Uh, you know, he, he tended to get into the trouble with well, get into the trouble with everybody, it seems to me. Right? <laughs> yes, he, he yeah, claim, right. Yeah,
1: I think maybe one of the most interesting things about McLean, which we don't, it's kind of hard to substantiate, that he suggested later. So he was in prison during the 1916 rising, and we don't really know exactly what he thought about it at the time. But he later suggested that through his contacts with Connolly, maybe via Seamus Reader, that Connolly's idea to rebel in 1916 was some in part shaped by Red Clydeside and a lot of the labour activity mm-hmm. in Glasgow at the time and in Scotland more more broadly and that that contributed to his idea that there was a time for a revolution, not just in Ireland but there may be a simultaneous revolution in Scotland as well. Now it, we don't know more about that because that was Maclean's version but it is interesting that that would spin, I guess, give a new spin to Connolly's thinking in 1916.
0: Just for any of our Irish listeners here, what do you mean by Red Clydeside? It's one of these things that gets, gets tossed out. What are we talking about here?
1: We're talking about a period from about 1910 to 1930 of um, industrial disputes across various industries, um, huge strikes, um, huge confrontations with police, occasionally with the army, um, lots of union organisation, um, rise in socialism, communism, and so on. So I guess that's that's a sort of industrial unrest around Glasgow, but also more broadly in in Scotland, whatever it refers to. Um, And it
3: was very much... uh heightened by the industrial element of the Clyde with the First World War and increase in working hours the um, creation of munitions uh, the shipyards and in turn that also offered opportunities for those that would be taking weapons to Ireland or um, getting access to explosives so that industrial nature um, provided opportunities there
0: Listen, let's tell you what I want to just get on to the, the, the war of independence period, let's just focus on that right, um in Terms of organization, okay, because post 1916, when the leaders were released about a year later, they did two things. One was to rebuild Sinn Fein as a political organization, the other was to rebuild the Irish Volunteers. And of course, then within the Irish Volunteers, you have the IRB as a secret caucus. What were the organizations then outside Ireland? Uh, either one of you whoever wants to.
2: Well, well, Niall actually very um, recently mentioned the, the Finian movement and, and the, the the you know the, the idea that the IRB was a core. For the kind of the later Republican movement during the War of Independence, and that is very much the case from let's say 1917. Um, basically, it's quite interesting. You mentioned the 1916 Rising. Um, there's a significant cohort of uh, ardent Republicans, Republicans who don't go to Dublin for the 1916 Rising because word doesn't reach them from the IRB centre. Um, uh, who goes, goes by the name of Mulholland and kind of much like Cork there is this kind of resentment then of <coughs> the younger generation that didn't, didn't have their opportunity to fight so you kind of have a revitalization of this kind of young Republican um, uh, vanguard so to speak of the Republican movement after 1916 that really want to get involved in the revolution so uh, a group of IRA volunteers for example come over to Ireland during the conscription crisis uh, during the McSweeney hunger strike as well uh, with a view to taking part in IRA action but the IRB is really at the centre of things, especially from 1917. And Collins, obviously Fergal mentioned a former émigré as well, with very good connections uh, in Liverpool, Manchester and Scotland through the IRB, sees Glasgow, but the, Scotland more broadly, as not only an IRB stronghold for the War of Independence movement, but as a Republican stronghold for the supply of weapons, uh, explosives uh, and arms specifically, much less so as a site of actual um conflict itself and this becomes one of his key conduits for making uh war and revolution possible in ireland
0: what where did they get the stuff as much interest i mean yes they didn't buy it obviously i mean fell off the back of a lorry i mean how, how did they get it and, and how did they get away with all of the above it? and then some um, the...
2: so basically it so there's uh, uh, mentioning red clyde site there's obviously kind of you know revolution is in the air Uh, Georgia Square becomes a site of transgressive activity. So there is this kind of sense of socialists, (coughs) returning soldiers, mixing and, and, you know, sharing in this kind of anti-authority movement, whatever, for whatever aim. Uh, But also kind of uh, they raided barracks or they had the support of, you know, there was maybe an open door, so to speak. So Maryhill Barracks, places like that. Uh, Collins, very importantly, has a former sailor on the ground by the name of Joe Vise, who is his kind of uh, IRB contact, and he's a lot of contacts in and in, in leith and develops a lot of relationships with foreign british soldiers so there's a kind of steady stream to the point where collins is sending upwards of 500 pounds a week of organization money as he puts it and quite interestingly and i finish at this point it's the scotland issue and funding of buying arms that becomes the divisive issue between michael collins and cahill Brugha in the war of independence because collins is using his irb money or organization money to buy arms in scotland uh, and basically uh, marginalising the structures of, of IRA, GHQ, and that caused the tension from late 1920 and ultimately the Civil War.
5: Sorry, did I win there?
0: Yeah. Sorry. Or, like, no. well, maybe well, just in the that. point of buying yeah. them,
1: I mean, they did just buy them in some cases yeah. um, from yeah. demobilised soldiers, so they right. just went to their houses and said, can I have your gun, I'll give you this, and there was a price guide sent over from Dublin by Michael Collins They knew what to pay. So, for example, in Motherwell, a man called James Byrne got 100 rifles and hundreds of handguns by just approaching ex-soldiers. Um, other times they raided barracks very easily and actually in Hamilton, this town on the outskirts of Glasgow one of the sergeants in the barracks was a veteran of the 1916 rising so so he obviously let them in and they took what they wanted
0: uh, How much arms manufacturing went on in Scotland, by the way?
1: Yeah, there was big munitions
0: factories all around It's a central production, yeah
4: if you look at the um, the military service pensions collection that released something called the IRA nominal rolls, which is full of all sorts of fascinating information. But heart, heart just explain,
0: maybe just explain, yeah, just in case anybody else knows, just so explain what, the, what so are the military service pensions. In
4: 1934, the Irish government, Fianna Fáil, uh, coming from the anti-treaty background, passed legislation to, to basically give pensions to people who fought during the revolution in the IRA, and this meant that anti-treatyites and, and much larger numbers of IRA people could now qualify for pensions. So in, in the end, they ended up getting applications from about 80,000 people, uh, not just from Ireland but across, across the world by that point. So one of the things they had to do was figure out actually who was in the IRA, 1990, uh, 1921, so they could figure out who, who actually deserved some compensation. So in the mid-1930s, they start generating these huge collections of records uh, called the nominal rolls. Uh, and brigade reports, and basically just masses and masses of information about names, places, officers, structures, and so on. So and and, and who shot who, and I mean it's yeah, detailed, yeah, and, and, right. and detailed yeah. accounts of what they actually did. So I, I had a look at the um, um, at the uh, the Scottish brigades records, which you can just you can you can just Google Scottish brigade military service pensions, and you'll find it. It's a huge collection. But what's interesting about it is like it's it's basically the the it's the Scottish. IRA making the case as to why they should be compensated because their role was important. So this is this is what mm. they're emphasising. So they are emphasising the fact that they sent small numbers over to Ireland to, to fight. That's kind of an important thing. But they're also emphasising that their role was essentially that of a kind of a support. I think Michael Collins referred to the um, Scottish IRAs being the auxiliaries of our attacking forces. So that was really understood by everyone, that the role was to secure arms and to keep the flow of arms going. So they, they did things like they gained access to collieries in mining districts to secure jet and detonators. They secured and safeguard dumps. They transported arms to clearing houses. That often involved uh, a lot of women, networks of coming and, and and other women as well as men. They armed... Uh, raids, uh, they, they had armed raids for arms and munitions. They set up a, a purchasing committee with purchasing agents, as Naha was saying. So, for example, it was £4 for a rifle, £3 for an automatic and so on. They At one point, they had people coming over from different brigades in Ireland, purchasing direct from um, Yeah, Scotland. so it wasn't it's all centralised. They, well, everyone was fed up in Ireland about GHQ not distributing enough arms, not distributing the arms um, fairly. Um, they, so they bought a lot of arms and they smuggled arms. So most of the arms that come to Ireland come from, from Liverpool and Glasgow. So that's really important, the presence of the IRA in the docks and, and on the, uh, the ships. But what's really interesting about the, the collection that I looked at is that they don't talk about fighting. I mean, they, they, there's only two, really two kind of violent incidents which are mentioned. But so they're not making the case that their importance is anything other than this kind of logistical, strategic importance. Um, I can say a little bit about how many there were and where, where they were.
0: Yeah, but just, can I, just one question be on the arms though. Have we any idea what the quantity of stuff, what, how much hardware do they actually manage to, to ship out?
4: Brian Hanley's been doing a lot of research on arms and he makes the point that given how few arms there were in Ireland, any amount of arms was important, right. but, but given the difficulty of actually shipping large numbers of arms. So say you've got a hundred rifles, when you think about the impact that makes across the whole of the country, yeah. uh, you know, a, a, rifle, a couple of rifles for, for each brigade, so that it was, on the one hand, it was important to, to have some flow, but it, 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 it was never really, they never really managed to use the millions of, of dollars that were raised, say, in America to bring in mass shipments because it just proved too difficult to bring in anything other than small amounts. So if you look at the witness statements of people like Seamus Reader Reeder and Seamus Robinson, they're really interesting because every time they come to Dublin or Belfast, to bring in over five guns, two rifles, suitcases. It's all smuggled in in a very kind of piecemeal kind of um fashion. I just
0: want you in a second, uh,
4: uh, uh, just, uh, and how much stuff was seized by the authorities, any any figures on that? Uh, Figures for how many people were arrested, I think uh, around 200 people in Scotland were arrested, now that wasn't all for smuggling, but a significant amount of them were arrested for possession of arms, smuggling of arms, so it was a pretty big operation. Mm. The only other thing I was going to say about in terms of numbers, you've got maybe around 2,500 People on what's called the nominal roles, of so Irish volunteer members by the summer of 1921, which is very, very big. It's very big in comparison to England. Um, but uh, 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 in terms of uh, the actual people who are doing most of the key operations, the buying of weapons, the swapping, that's a much smaller group of people who, who wouldn't be that larger group who would maybe do drilling and do this kind of almost like public-facing Irish volunteers. You're looking at this inner core of IRB organisers who do things in a much more kind of informal way so, that's a, so it's a much smaller number of people who, who basically control operations and going back to Dara's point this was all sorts of infighting I mean this is pe- basically people who owe their loyalty to Collins mm. and so rows between Brewer and Collins extending to rows between different officers and companies in, in Scotland because the network is connected. Do you want to come in there? Just
2: actually just in terms of the, to Fergus point about the, the smuggling of arms and Niles as well Collins's kind of main uh, objective is to make this a very proficient, professional operation for when he comes in charge in 1918, and by 1920, what's happening is that the arms that are being collected in Glasgow, London, Liverpool are all being sh- shipped uh, and routed through Liverpool um, as a kind of central storing house because British intelligence, and um, this is going full circle, because of Red Clydeside is so hot. On the republican movement in Scotland, that they're they're searching houses and so on. Um, so everything's been shipped through Liverpool. So you actually have, by late nineteen twenty, uh, just before Bloody Sunday, basically a quite sophisticated uh, joined up network of arms smuggling within the United Kingdom that goes through Liverpool primarily. Um, but just to give you an example of the numbers, um, Henry Coyle, who was one of the the chief smugglers in arms, um, was actually they used to use the train from Glasgow to liverpool so you use public transport to <clears throat> ship, move stuff from city to city he decided to go in a lorry and after the uh, the attacks on the liverpool docks in november 1920 there were huge raids but 20 republicans were arrested um he went on the run and on a high-speed chase and i use that term loosely through alawa and um, by which 300 revolvers uh and two swords were picked up um by the police authorities which gives you a sense of the kind of key the the randomness of it but I just want to mention one other thing which I think is really important and it circles back to this issue of class and you know and so on the IRB as Collins directed in Scotland were very much a class-based organization in the sense of hierarchy of Irish nationalisms and if you read the correspondence between Collins and his people on the ground in Scotland and so on he talks about the IRB types the IRB men being of men of the right kind recurrently and the left-wing people who are supporting the Irish citizen army and secreting arms as undesirables. And this is like monthly. So there is almost you know, this idea of, um, the Kevin O'Higgins mentioned, the Republican movement being the most conservative revolutionaries ever to put together a successful revolution. Collins' relationship with Scotland was emblematic of that. There was certainly a status attached to the IRB, but it's also a class thing. And to be working class or to have socialist views to him was antithetical to the revolutionary movement.
0: Kirsty, I I just wanted to be, be bring it in here because mention mentioned being made of Marcus Skinner. Um, what were the role of women in all this like? What are they doing in, in, in this part of the world?
3: Um, they were very much involved in that smuggling operation. So we sort of have that moving from 1915 onwards, carrying on plasterising uh, into the War of Independence. And they're using similar methods the whole way through. So um, people like... Shane Frieder and Margaret Skinner would be visiting the shipyards and um, removing weapons and women's would be the lookouts, they would be the cover-up, it would be um, boyfriend and girlfriend out for a walk, um, but they would then take a much more active role in the smuggling. Um, often it would be the case of uh, fuses or jail night hidden in her clothes. Uh, Margaret Skinner famously had detonators in her hat, a bomb in her hat, um, and fuses wrapped around her body. Um, But that wasn't the only time that happened. Looking on to um, 1917, 1918, we've got uh, Catherine Rooney, who was Irish-born, had been involved in the GPO, has moved to Glasgow for work, and she's then returning to visit her family in Dublin with um, fuses sewed into her clothing, and this became something that was regularly done as a way of smuggling because women were less likely to be stopped. Um, so you had Seamus Reader and Joe Robinson would be uh, handing over gelignite on the middle of Sockey Hall Street um, at night. They visited them in the grocery stores to make stores to make exchange, and it was that um, they were a less suspicious uh, target, so it was easier to be used for the smuggling.
0: Tell you, just before I ask the next point, just to remind everybody, if you have a question, if you are, if you want to make a, an observation, I'm just keeping an eye on the time here. Uh, we don't want this to be like a sing-song where everybody wants to get in at the end, you know. Uh, Ender, yeah. C- do, can we use the the radio mic, Ender, just so y- you can be heard? And if you can. <laughs> um, <coughs>
6: um, given the contribution of Scots people based in Scotland, Irish-based people in Scotland. And famously in, in James Connolly that case, why do you think Ireland itself has been so reluctant to acknowledge the role that people played outside of Ireland during the Irish Revolution? There's a well known case during the nineteen sixteen commemorations where a descendant of James Connolly uh, is abused and you know told that you know what are you doing you're English what are you doing at this event? I think it was something in Dublin Castle. Why do you think Ireland has been slow to acknowledge the role of people? Who weren't necessarily in Ireland, but
3: they're Irish or otherwise? I think in some ways it's been sort of subsumed by history. Um, Connolly himself puts in the 1911 census that um, he was from Monaghan. Um, even if you look at Scottish newspapers from uh, 1916, he's described as being from Monaghan or Cork. Um, Nora Connolly, who was Edinburgh born herself, his daughter very much bought into that um, sort of myth of her father being born in Monaghan, and there was this basis of. You know, Ireland's hero had to be Irish. It couldn't be from outside of that that country, almost. That I, I,
4: think oh. there, I think there might be a Scottish side of it we need to think about. I mean, certainly you can find lots of quotations from people like de Valera and Collins testifying to how important Scotland was. And, you know, maybe you could take it with a pinch of salt because they'd probably go to America and say how important America was too. But there, there certainly is plenty of acknowledgement from revolutionaries of the time and afterwards. But I wonder if it's a case of, you know, we... Me- social memory is an interesting thing we we used to think that sort of governments or states kind of constructed the narratives of revolutions and how they're remembered but increasingly you know we see that memory is sort of constructed from from below. Um, Chris Bambury, in his The People's History of Scotland suggested that the Scottish history, uh, the, the, the history of, sort of Irish Republicans in Scotland was a forgotten history uh, and he makes the point that um, uh, you're looking at a population that's quite working class, uh, quite, quite a lot of poverty Uh, It's a transient population. So the the material I was looking at in the 1930s, a lot of the people who were fighting with the IRA in Scotland in 1919 are actually gone. They're in America, they're back in Ireland, they're scattered other places. Um, And also, if you think about the context in which, how are people in Scotland maybe going to tell their story about what they did and build memorials and kind of write memoirs and so on? They're in a society, certainly in the west of Scotland, where there's a lot of sectarianism. There's a a, a lot of um, uh, reasons why... Uh, it is anti immigrant sentiment. There's a lot of reasons why it's maybe difficult for them to, to, to sort of for that memory to sort of take hold in a way which we see differently in the south of Ireland. And maybe there's that kind of comparison if you look at Republicans north of the border, they do much less kind of remembering and they get much ma- much less acknowledgement because of the political context after the revolution. I think that's at least part of the story. Yeah. Can I just say,
6: yeah. I'm thinking more about you know, Ireland itself. I mean, I can understand the Scottish context. Mm. I grew up beside James Connolly for more impossible. I didn't know James Connolly. I don't think I'd be unique like that. Um, Lots of people don't realise that Connolly is Scottish, and it hasn't really suited the the narrative of the revolution coming from within the great Irish soul to to say that it it may have come actually from other places as well, not just Ireland. Well, the
0: dialogue may be suggestive... an Explanation is just straightforward snobbery, like that, that. That people who go to, I mean, even look at the 1916 proclamation, exile children in America. What about all the other exiled children? You know, they're only one small section of them. Um, but there, this idea that the the Irish Americans are the kind of creme de la creme, and then these you've got these working class gutties who go to Birmingham and Glasgow and Edinburgh, and they're of a, a inferior quality, you know, I mean, from, I, I, and I think, from what Darryl is saying,
2: yeah. And I think, um, I think also as well, like, kind of. To, to to go beyond the island and you've written obviously extensively is to disrupt the expected chronologies and collective memory of especially this period etc so we kind of almost fall quite neatly into kind of the periodization of the irish revolution is the following events and the collective memory and um, but that's you know there are often you know invented traditions associated with that this kind of raids and rallies approach to how we remember this it's obviously you know the I think Morris Walsh wrote about this in *Bitter Freedom*. He said the Irish revolution, most experienced in the world, was a non-violent, propagandist one. When you think that you take the global population, hmm. and actually Ireland was an island in terms of political violence, you know, um, Irish political violence. So the revolution as experienced in the United States, Australia was not the same revolution as experienced in, in domestically.
3: And I think, from, oh sorry, I was going to say from the Scottish perspective as well. Is the Scottish involvement in Ireland was as fighting force was minor, and um, Connolly maybe thirty for the Kimmage garrison. So there was a very sort of minor physical force there. It was the support that came from Scotland was slightly, slightly different dynamic, perhaps, um, which could be part of that.
4: Uh, and I I do think you're right. I think the end in, in terms of what you're getting at, in terms of does a you know does a kind of. As, as soon as the revolution is over, the Irish Free State begin constructing a narrative of the revolution that really emphasises respectability in the Irish Free State. I mean, that's the key kind of characteristic. And I guess these, you know, it, the attitudes to, uh, to Irish emigrants generally are, are are pretty hypocritical and lack empathy and sympathy. And I guess a lot of these working class people who, who left Ireland and Liverpool and Manchester, they, they don't fit the idea of the, you know, the, the notion of a ambushes at the crossroads and so on and i mean brian hanley makes this point in his work on on gun running there's a lot of um interconnections with criminal gangs in places like birmingham and so on it's a kind of seedy sordid stories and so on. and it doesn't fit maybe the image that the ira that the free state want to project of the ira being a very noble force fighting a very conventional kind of war even in fact the kind of some of the stuff that they do like there's very little violence in in scotland but you know arson and burning down of warehouses in liverpool and so on the ideas about maybe assassinating people—they're very difficult to, to sort of make part of a kind of heroic narrative of, of how the war was won.
3: On, sorry, very briefly, uh, following on from that, from the idea of image and a heroic image, there is uh, the narrative Connolly that's been told in Scotland. That if you bring in his Scottish aspect, it suddenly becomes slightly problematic, and that the newspapers of the time are calling Connolly not only a traitor to his country but his family. Uh, they're t- uh, spreading stories about how two of his nephews had been killed in the First World War, and they weren't, um, but his brother, I believe, was buried with full military honours in June 1916. Um, so you have this sort of tale of two brothers, it suddenly becomes quite problematic when you consider that Connolly was fighting against the British state, um, and that doesn't necessarily fit into a sort of clean-cut narrative.
0: Now, does anybody else want to come in? We have the the mic here if you do. Just while you're gathering your thoughts, just looking at this from the we've been talking about the the revolutionary side or the Irish side. I mean, what about from the point of view of the government and the powers that be, right? I mean, did they have perception of this kind of a red green alliance, for want of a better phrase?
4: uh, You know, was
0: that part of their perception of what was going on here?
4: The British government.
0: Yeah, British government and, you know, the, the, the ruling circles generally.
4: Um, yeah, I mean, Dara may want to speak to this as well, but I think you have a you have um, a lot of uh, British uh, military and intelligence kind of figures. A lot of them with very strong connections to Ulster Unionism. So there's kind of a, an Ulster Unionist Orange kind of establishment which stretches into Britain. And very often, what you what you get is a kind of suggested alliance between um, Bolshevism in Russia uh, that threatened labour strikes in places like the Clyde side um, and in England. Um, uh, the Irish question, and of course, the sort of imperial crisis, the anti-imperial nationalism in India and Egypt and so on. Now, I don't think these things were as connected as, um, as the intelligence officials thought, but, but it, there's a kind of an official mindset which sees a kind of a post-war attack on the whole social and political order that's in a way m- much more joined up than it actually is. So there's a kind of a mentality of maybe um, a paranoia. <coughs>
0: That sort of paranoia can cut both ways. I mean, we've been talking about the, the radical element of it, but it can also drive people in the other direction. Um, and I, I'm thinking here now, uh, 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 the period of the, the war you know, the war of independence itself. I mean, there are British soldiers getting killed in Ireland, and I'm assuming a fair proportion of them are Scottish.
3: Yeah, so how's that playing
0: back in the home fires?
3: Uh, I think in, it's John McLean that writes the uh, pamphlet a. Ireland's tragedy, Scotland's the great Disgrace, which mm. <coughs> is writing against the involvement of Scottish soldiers in uh, the Irish War of Independence. He's saying that um, the working class and nationalist movement should be combined. But this t- stage, he's turned to support for Irish independence. Um, he's sharing stage with Countess Markovic. He's uh, writing heavily in support of that. So he's very much against that idea of the Scottish.
1: Um, so they've been involved in the War of Independence. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, just, no, no, yeah. Well, just to say the, the well, to agree with Fergal. First of all, the authorities kind of, I mean, it didn't turn a blind eye to the gun running, but it wasn't policed as maybe as as rigorously as you might imagine until there was a suspected maybe red connection or a socialist or communist connection. Um, there was also a policeman killed in Scotland by the IRA during a botched prison break in 1921. Um, and that did mobilise the police much more so against the IRA and crack down on them. Um, so there was more repression following that. In also, following but, but now are you saying that
0: they're more concerned about the the, the red
1: scare than the green scare, if you know what I mean? They were more concerned about red links, and McLean was the worst. So the police report on McLean said he's one of the worst. He's like a red and a mix of red and green. Um, right. And <laughs> this is what we're uh, trying to avoid, mm. trying to police.
3: And it's that Irish influence. that's also turning him towards support for Scottish independence too. Right. Um, and the idea that um, in a smaller nation, socialism can take sort of more power and overturn the government.
2: I think distance also plays a part. There's a, sh- a quite a revealing series of correspondence, just in terms of numbers, if I can give them. To them. So, the uh, John Carney, who's the senior IRA commandant, and when he arrives in August 1920, he says there were 630 uh, IRA men, um, not, not including Commandant, in um, in Scotland at the time. A month later, the um, uh, Procurator Fiscal, Fiscal in Scotland says there's 10,000. By the time the news reaches London, a month later, it's 30,000 and 20,000 with rifles. <laughs> and so there is that sense of distance when you're in London, you're reporting on it. Because you're seeing this, this iconography of revolution as well in the press and so on. So actually, Scotland's probably overrepresented in the, the intelligence files comparatively to, let's say, London. Or, Glad- or London, or Manchester, and so on. Some some with due cause, but others definitely at a paranoia hmm. setting
4: in, yeah. I, th- I think it's also very useful for us to think about the War of Independence as, as not so much a military conflict, but as a, 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 a political and a propaganda conflict, primarily with, with, with the, the ability to prolong a kind of guerrilla war insurrection as being an important part of that. And in that case, the politics of um, weakening Britain's resolve in Ireland is very important. And I think one of the differences in Britain and looking at some other imperial conflicts at the same time, Britain is a relatively liberal and democratic state. And so it's Mm. very important for Irish Republicans to cultivate trade union opinion, Labour Party opinion, liberal left-wing newspapers and so on. I I think there's maybe a case that Irish Republicans aren't that successful in doing it in Britain as they they are in America. But nonetheless, I think that's quite important and sort of the, the, the gradual pressure on David Lloyd George to sort of, you know... Very, it's very difficult to justify the black and tans or auxiliaries. So uh, th- that, that presence, I suppose, of, a, of, of the diaspora politics, trying to link in with uh, progressive currents within Scotland I think, is quite an important part of applying a kind of pressure on Britain. I think you could say that, m- that, that Irish Republicans most effectively pressure British policy in Ireland, outside Ireland, in the US, in the empire, in places like Scotland. That's in a sense where they've got a bit more kind of leverage to sort of say this is pretty hard to justify what you're doing. Mm.
0: Now, let's just, to, just look at the, the clock here. Um, treaty then signed in, in December 1921, right? I, I, don't, I don't jump into the civil war here. Just look at the treaty, right? Um, how did that go down? In, 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 I mean, both both amongst the British establishment, but also amongst, say, the, 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 the fellow travellers, the support network, say, outside Ireland. Were they confused by it, or what did they welcome it? Or? Uh, so I think there was a sense, of,
2: to my earlier point, that the, the Sinn Féin movement in Scotland was probably more republican in some cases than their movement at home, and there is always that sense of, again, going back to earlier discussions, about you know the idea of the diaspora Irish being more Irish than the Irish at home. So it was a very strong sentiment against the the, the treaty, uh, certainly um, among the um, Sinn Féin movement and also the IRA. They're almost unanimously. Uh, anti-treaty as a movement. So the active forces are, are anti-treaty. But then you have a core kind of of the Sinn Féin type who who are kind of political and don't forget the idea of old wine and new bottles. There's certainly an element of transfer or, or crossover of personnel from the old home rule movement from let's say 1920, so a bit later than Ireland, hmm. um, to the new <laughs> Sinn Féin movement. And obviously they're much more accepting um, in general terms of, of the treaty. Um, but so I think that's kind of, it's it strengthens the, the Republican movement's resolve to, to act actually, in a way, and I know you don't want to go into the treaty, to the Civil War, but I'll go there briefly. Sure. sure, I'll go there briefly. Uh, the, 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 the Republican movement in Scotland becomes uh, one of the core uh, pillars of De Valera's anti-treaty movement after the, the treaty had signed and after the beginning of the Civil War. And it's one of the last kind of outposts of the Republican movement from December 21, really.
0: Just my point about the, about the, 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 the British establishment, right? Uh, this is a point, again, Brian Handy has made more than once. The, the, we kind of don't appreciate the sense that they saw the treaty as a defeat or, or, or a, a retreat, at the very least, if not a defeat. I mean, I mean he said that if, if you, in terms of even just the acreage of territory it was more than Germany lost after the First World War.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm often um, surprised by how little kind of Awareness there is, certainly in in parts of Britain, about how crucial the events of 1920, 21, 22 were in in shaping the the UK itself and the UK's kind of border. I I suspect, you know, we won't have a lot of attention paid to partition, for example, next year. It's certainly in in parts of England. Uh, I think... At the time, not sure about
0: that. Uh, backstop's going to be in the headlines, I'm sure, right? Perhaps, oh, well, don't mention, uh, I don't uh, mention the war, I mean, Jesus. The,
4: the, 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 um, <laughs> the, the British uh, committee, which uh, has been doing the 1914 to 1918 commemoration, which has been very kind of successful, had a, ha, have come to the decision that they're, they're going to stop commemorating and not go into the post war. Uh, period, I- against the advice of historians like um, Hugh Strong, for example, who, who advises the committee, is the post-war period is really important, not just a kind of part of global history, but a part of British history, because of what's happening in places like Ireland and India. And it seems to me there's very little political appetite, certainly in, in, the, in, in the Tory party, in the, in the British government, to, to reflect on what happens after the... First of all, because violence, you know, continues on hmm. in a different form, but in a, in a way which really shapes not just Ireland, but shapes Britain in really important um, ways. And I, I think there, it's a bit like, to go back to Brexit, you know, sometimes there's a tendency to just not pay attention to Ireland, to take the eye off the ball, you know. It's Surely important. not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to go back to the treaty, I mean, I think... Uh, uh, die- oh, thank you for coming. Diehards on both sides are... Uh, Diehards on both sides uh, are, are pretty defeated. So you've got anti-treaty areas, uh, Munster, where most of the fighting is going on, and they feel betrayed is too strong, but they're really surprised that suddenly the, the conflict has come to an end and there's a truce when they felt that they could push on and achieve war. As soon as you have a truce, it's obvious that there's not going to be a republic, that, that what will follow will be a compromise. And on the British side, you've got, I think, by and large, the British... The, the, senior figures in the British army are quite relieved that it's come to an end, that they're sick of the fighting they think it can only be politically resolved but you've got die hard kind of British and um, unionist figures who feel kind of similar we, could, we had them on the run, we could, we, we could have finished the effort, so of course I think any kind of compromise is going to leave the extremes uh, un- unhappy Now
0: of course in Ireland it all was pear shaped the, the treaty split, the civil war So how does that I mean, I, I'm thinking of poor old John McLean again right He's one of his. the second, third time he's in jail, and he comes out like, and Ireland is tearing itself apart,
1: with this you know, with the civil war. Mm.
0: I mean, his whole position was in was in tatters, essentially.
1: I mean, I wouldn't say his position was in tatters. Um, he actually dies in nineteen twenty three, so he doesn't see the civil war right to its end. Um, I mean, a, Maclean's reading of the civil war, I'm sure, was based more on, on class and social factors than many people in ireland would have afforded the same reading but in um in scotland to come back to the civil war i think the scottish ira are predominantly anti-treaty and of course one of the big events during the, the civil war in scotland is and across britain of course is that numerous people are deported from britain back to the free state at the behest of the free state and interned in ireland in Mountjoy. this is actually illegal it happens in march 1923 uh, I think 40 um, Scottish IRA men officers uh, um, are deported to Ireland, which is very damaging to the movement and activity. Um, and they're actually released in May because when it's challenged by Art O'Brien, it's proven that the act of deporting them from Britain to Ireland to be in is actually uh, illegal.
0: Now, uh, 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 Virgo, am I right in that Irish, uh, uh, Irish-American opinion, on the other hand, tend to be pro-treaty? Am I right in that?
4: Um there's, there's someone in the audience, could, who, could perhaps give that man a microphone on this point. Put him on. I'll put him on the spot. It's Pat, um, Patrick Manuel. Patrick, yeah, Patrick.
0: By the way, just to give him a plug, he he also has an article in our supplement, right? So take it away, Patrick. <laughs> um, well,
4: I
5: won't comment too much on the um, on the uh, post-Treaty uh, situation, but um, it, obviously, in the United States, like what I study is the ancient order of Pythones. And uh, if you look at the AOH from even before the Easter Rising, they were far more rapidly Republican, um, and this reflected broader Irish-American opinion than, uh, than almost anything you would see in, uh, in Ireland, with the exception of some of the, some of the hardliners. And that obviously continues right through the, uh, the revolutionary era. And um, I also study Canada. Um, I probably define myself much more as an Irish-Canadian over an Irish-American story. and. Uh, In Canada, political opinion was was far more modern. It tended to be constitutional, uh, it tended to be uh, very much steeped in in, in imperial loyalty. Uh, The language of home rule continued not only after the Easter Rising in 1916, but in many cases uh, after 1919, uh, 20 and 21. You still get Irish Canadians clinging to uh, Ireland as being part of the British Empire. Because Canada, of course, was was part of the British Empire, and um, they had lived quite intensely uh, within the structures of the empire for several generations in some cases. So republicanism was very slow to take hold in places like Canada, New England. I think Australia, New Zealand, you will see that uh, as well. Mm. So America really stands out as I think exceptional within the within the global Irish diaspora, mm. uh, rather than sort of being the uh,
4: I mean, one of the things we didn't discuss is there's a there's kind of particular characteristics of diaspora politics well. and factionalism is one of them oh. and like when De Valera goes to America he really splits Irish American opinion quite badly into different factions and so you have some people who you would think of as being diehard Republicans like John Devoy who become supporters of the, the free state I think mm-hmm. in part because they hate De Valera but you've obviously got a lot of radical Irish American opinion throw the weight behind de Valera and his efforts to, you know, to okay, win. Okay, so it's not just, it is
5: a
0: mixed bag, then? Oh, it's
4: definitely a mixed bag. And if you right. look, there's a lot of mainstream opinion that we don't pay too much attention to, like the Catholic Church, for example. They would have been very uneasy supporting Republican violence. <laughs> and then we also have a lot of Labour opinion, which we tend not to think of, uh, you know. So so, it, so I think it's quite its, it's quite a, a complicated picture. But I think the main one of the main impacts of the Civil War on the Diaspora is a, a kind of embarrassment, confusion, dismay... And the sort of the period from about 1916 to 1923, looking back in it in a lot of countries, it's a really unique moment of sort of uh, Irish identity becoming a very important thing because you have a sort of a mobilisation of Irish opinion globally, and uh, in a lot of places that just fizzles out quite quickly because of the impact of the civil war and the disappointments, and the people just you know, if you're in Melbourne, it's just very hard to follow what's what's happened and to know which side to... There's, yeah.
2: one, there's one specific um, event, actually, that kind of really emphasises that, and that's the Irish Race Congress, which meets in Paris in January 1922 at the behest of De Valera several months earlier, and this is supposed to be the great triumphant message from around the world that the Irish diaspora can speak politically for the Irish nation, and you have strong representation from Scotland, notwithstanding the United States and so on, but this kind of becomes becomes a a week full of recrimination because it's the I think it's the seventh to the fourteenth of January nineteen twenty two the treaty has just been defeated and um, but basically the divides of the treaty uh, vote are now transferred to Paris uh, so where this grand strategy of global um, you know politics basically falls apart on the divides of the treaty but to Fergal's point many of the diaspora delegates who some of them travel from Peru for example and far as far away as Australia. Find it very puzzling. I don't quite understand the nuances of, hmm. you know, this, the, the 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 divides of the treaty settlement. It's it's not quite the politics that they would you know would be used to or accustomed to.
0: Yeah, but just to, sorry, Chris, you want to come speak. in there? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I was just following on from what Fergal was saying. I was thinking we still sort of feel the influence of that time period in Scotland in sort of contemporary debate about Scottish politics. Hmm. It was something that was very odd about the nature of the Scottish independence referendum. The run up to it was the absence of Ireland. An absen- absence of conversations about Ireland or references to it. It was very much done on a sort of vague economic term initially. Um, it was references to Parnell, but that time period remained very absent from discussions. Mm. And I don't know if there was a certain element. might have been sensible, this. I don't know. Sorry, you I just. Well, yeah, it does, it does say a different, a different thing, but uh, yeah, any mentions of Ireland, I think, because of that time period, become very much um, silenced in part of the political debate there
0: just i uh, just i'm looking at the time here guys so uh, we're, we're nearly coming to the end here so I, if now's your chance if you want to uh, make a contribution or ask a question i just want to make it just come back to the global uh, theme here um because it, it seems to me that, i mean i people beat themselves up for years about the, the the bitter divisions and disaster of the civil war right but if you look at, if you take the broader global view that type of reaction or pullback from revolution is is happening all over the globe no, Ireland is, is not exceptional. It's, mm. it's part in, of a general pattern. being followed by Yeah, that, that, that the revolutionary movements reach a certain peak and then they recede. And we, we're just the same as yeah, everybody I, else.
4: Yes. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to look at it comparatively. So Ireland is one of a big group of nations who in the immediate aftermath of the First World War want independence. Now, those nations which fall within Central and Eastern Europe and want independence from a defeated mm. empire, that's no problem. Those nations who want to get independence from a victorious empire, they're generally not successful. So Ireland in some ways compares to um, countries like India and Egypt. If you look at the international press, they're grouped together most often. And I think there's a case to be made that Ireland is more successful for a variety of reasons, partly because there is a very, very effective campaign at home and mobilizing a kind of international, global kind of diaspora and audience. But I think also Ireland is treated differently to India or Egypt. I mean, you look at the levels of violence that Britain uses in Ireland and in India at the same time. So, for example, when Bloody Sunday happens, it's described as um, Ireland's Amritsar, but, you know, I think it's 14 people killed instead of 600 or so. Mm. Uh, And also the way in which, and this is something our project is looking at, the way in which um, rhetoric about race is used is quite interesting. So Irish Republicans can say, well, you know, all the other Irish nations have won their freedom. We're Mm. We're the last white people still enslaved. So I think it's really useful to sort of to take that kind of comparative global frame and, and look at relatively what Ireland achieved and if you do that you can see that Ireland, a lot of people in other parts of the world would say getting the treaty the British handing over at Dublin Castle the army leaving was a very very um, surprising uh, and, and, and a very impressive kind of achievement but, but of course because of our treaty split and civil war it wasn't seen that way at mm. home but I think we've certainly had many other people so this, is, this, yeah. this, this showed that small countries could take on much more powerful empires effectively. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I was wondering how far you think there was a kind of genuine interest and commitment to internationalism and interest in like global movements among Irish Republicans, or is it mainly that they're just using it strategically yeah. like to get money or
0: arms? That's a good question. Is it, is, it, is it totally unprincipled and pragmatic, or did they really believe the rhetoric?
2: It's a really good question. I think there's a sense of a global moment uh, around this time, which certainly gets very quickly after the uh the civil war to the point where you can talk about a conservative revolution and counter-revolution happening Um you know, you, you know people like liam mellows for example writes very often about you know socialism around the world um and there is that sense of continuity so if you go to the to the states and fergal alluded to this that you know even irish americans not only rhetorically but i mean the famous image of, of course of de valera in native american headdress but he actually is meeting you know african americans uh, native americans and, and others as well so there's that sense of kind of um, anti-authority, um, kind of a collectivity, and I, I, there is someone has made this point previously. So I'm not claiming any credit for this, saying that the the executions, especially which, of course, the civil war has become renowned for, um, infamously of Liam Mellows and others, was perhaps not only the death of those individuals, but the death of ideas among them, internationalism. So that could be something we look at.
0: No, it's an interesting point you make because I mean the classic case is the um, the, the what do you call it, the the Democratic program mm. right um, Democratic program was was passed unanimously by the doll whenever January right and I have to say this is just purely personal thing I'm always very suspicious of anything that's passed unanimously right <laughs> I, I, I'm always much happier if there's a really knockdown kick you know you know nasty fight and then there's a very tight vote and then people vote for something and you'll find that it's far more purchase like anyway that's mm. just a, an observation because it seems to me that the, the democratic program was was passed just to impress. The international labor organization well that's just one way of looking at it in other words like that they they really w- just want to get this passed so they could go to the the ilo in geneva and say you know we, we want your support
4: mm-hmm. you know I, I think also to go back to, to Dara's point and partly to answer the question i mean i think of course there is solidarity but some obviously some republicans are much more progressive than others but i think what there is in 1919 across many different countries is there's this realization that the rules of the game have changed that you know particularly because of uh, the, the wilsonian idea uh, being so popular that 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 the nation state has become legitimised, and that if you can frame your political conflict in terms of the demand for national for democratic national self determination against imperialism, that, that, that in a sense helps slightly to, to to so so you find you find groups of anti imperialists who I think have very little connection between it, between each other using the same kind of language and arguments, and they're kind of grafting that onto their own longer kind of national struggles than that. and I think in some ways that that's really the key thing to, for us to understand how you know just like we might think about the Arab Spring there are these moments when suddenly doors that seem closed before the First World War kind of open up and you can make arguments which are very almost in parallel but aren't necessarily dependent on a kind of a close contact or a shared kind of um, conspiracy or subversion between different national groupings and of course there are occasions when they're all in the same places like they're, they're in New York or they're uh, outside Paris during the Versailles conference and so on. So there are also some connections, but I'm not sure that they're that important compared to the sense that, that, that the way in which political power operates is, is understood to have changed.
1: Maybe, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just say, uh, very briefly on that, uh, just different types of internationalism, and maybe one of the most um, sort of vibrant spaces of internationalism was campaigns for political prisoners. And of course, there was lots of them on the Irish nationalist side, but if you think of Hannah Sheehy Skeffington when she goes to the United States, um, on the question of political prisoners there, uh, is solidarity. There's a lot of kind of cohesiveness between groups and political prisoners' campaigns that maybe you wouldn't get otherwise in terms of of
4: political approaches.
3: Yeah, I think very much what you've got there is um, after nineteen sixteen. It's the women that really have to carry on the sort of argument who are going over to America. They're taking the speaking tours and. Um, and it's actually two Scots, um, Nora Connolly and Margaret Skinner, who are publishing mm. in America in that time period to raise support um, for Irish independence. Um, I think Doing My Bit for Ireland was published in 1917, uh, "Unbroken Tradition was published in 1918. And they very much focused on the sort of personal aspects, the loss of a father, um, the injury of a young woman, to sort of draw that support on a very personal level from those that we're speaking to. And that's combined with Hannah Sheehy-Skeffington, who's organising these lecture tours.
0: Now, anybody else? If there isn't, I will wrap up. Um, just a final question here. We, we've touched on it before. I mean, how... how This, this whole Scottish angle, I mean, has it... A, I mean, some of you made the point that they, they, they didn't hear much about the fact that Connolly was, was, was Scottish. I mean, do you think it has been airbrushed out?
3: Yes.
0: And uh, are we... You did yeah.
3: Yes. Yeah, yeah. um I spent the year before I started studying Irish-Scottish studies in Dublin, and people say, oh, Irish-Scottish connections. Are there any for 1916? you go, oh, mm. well, Connolly, mm. and you a blank look and respect. Mm. um I think that was very much part of Connolly's own sort of creation of his own myth, and seeing that it was from Monaghan very much in the way Nora Connolly struggled with the idea of Edinburgh birth. And you see even her own writings through, she moves from being... Uh, Northern to Scottish um, in the end, and sort of comes to greater acceptance of it. Um, But yeah, I think I think Scottishness, especially, has been sort of airbrushed out of history.
4: Well, I just wanted, Uh uh, uh, as we're nearing the end, to sort of uh, end with a slightly positive uh, point, which is if 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 the revolutionary contribution of um, Irish people in Scotland was forgotten. Uh, we now have an opportunity to write it because the, the the material that's coming out of the military service pensions collection, so not just this huge amount of information about the Scottish Brigade, but also we can track through individual military pension applications. We can track what happened to vast numbers of Irish people in Scotland, in other countries, and we can reconstruct not just what their revolutionary role was, including the role of women, which increasingly we have more information, but we can also kind of ask what happened to them afterwards. Where did they go? Where did they end up? And so there's a very rich... We have the opportunity for the first time, I think, to write a really kind of rich history of this very important kind of phenomena of aspect of the revolution. But I think it's important, it's not just in terms of uh, their role in the revolution, but actually it could ask really interesting questions about the identity of Irish people in Scotland, about ethnicity, about political... You know, there's Mm. so much Mm. more that we can do with this material. So I think we will see a lot more in the future because we now have the sort of the raw material we need to, to do it.
0: And we also have the History Ireland uh, special supplement, uh, a global history of the Irish Revolution, which will will educate the whole country, I'm sure. uh, Word is it's selling well, uh, Fergal, and you'll be glad to hear. Um, Listen, I'm going to have to wrap up here, guys. Um, uh, We've had a very uh, interesting discussion. I've learned a few things myself, uh, for sure. Um, So I'd like to uh, thank our speakers, uh, Dara Gannon and Fergal McGarry, uh, Nia Willihan and Kirsty Lusk, I'd like to thank you, the audience, in particular those of you who made a contribution on the floor. And uh, I hope uh, you'll you'll be back at the next Hedge School. The next Hedge School, by the way, is not till um, the end of August. It's at the Electric Picnic uh, Rock Festival. So if you want, it always rains, but that's okay because that means you can come into the tent to the Hedge School. So if you want to don the wellies uh, and come over to that, I might see you there. So thank you very much. Thank you.
2: It's the, the, the
1: emergency. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the anniversary oh, it I
1: mean, I can not
3: want to get into the 39, yeah, yeah. yeah, you're pretty you're
0: pretty um, yeah. 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 Well, I'm a Rangers supporter. No, I have um, oh. my stars, uh, my star is David McCullough. How are you doing? How we Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry, you said calling. Oh, yes, yes. What was the article about... Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, 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 yes. I'll be in touch. brilliant.
3: To,
2: uh, go Thank you. are both irish We're Yeah. We're confused. It's OK, it happens. <laughs> well, yeah. we're, for, <laughs> we're, for, yeah. we're for nine we're for actually I we uh, Yeah, like, uh, I was trusting you to keep uh, us on time. It's like, what was, to it to was the presidential election where the presidential candidate looked at the watch against Clinton in the debate? We didn't win, and they're